Good morning. We'll be in Luke 5, the end of Luke 5, the beginning of Luke 6 this morning. But uh, before I get started in the book of Luke, uh, I love it when these Holy Spirit things happen. What happened this week was I was feeling like I need to open today's sermon with reading Psalm 91. And then I saw the email where Graham was feeling like our church body needed to hear Psalm 91. So that's just affirmed what I was going to do. Uh, made me feel real good about that. I was actually going to read part of it, but I guess I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not very long, but I hope you find comfort in it. This is what it says. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will charge and command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the line, upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91. I find great comfort in these words, promising uh, security for those who put their trust in the Lord. Yeah, we go through trials. We get sick. We get injured. We go through rough patches, don't we? But the Lord is with us, and that's his promise, is to keep us safe and secure all the way through all those things. And so I find great comfort in this psalm and, and others like it. God is great, so I do not have to fear. God is greater than any circumstance that comes my way, right? God is great, so I do not have to fear the opinions of others. God is great, so I do not have to fear whatever trial may come. I do not have to fear because God is with me. And we are in a season, obviously, where fear is a real powerful force right now. And what I sense and I've heard among our conversation this morning and and through our uh, messages to each other throughout the week, is that, yeah, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be the ones that are feeding into that fear. Our default can be safety, security, because of who is in our life, the Lord. And we have one another, too. I, I appreciated that Jan said, call one another, talk to each other. If you are afraid, call somebody. Don't keep it for yourself. Yeah, we're going to pray together. It's meant to be uh, shared. We're meant to go through these trials together. Amen? 
And that's really what the theme is for this morning's passages, is uh, it's the fear of the unseen and the unknown. I really feel for those who are germ-sensitive people, you know, who walk into a room and see every hard surface as a potential threat, right? To, to view other people as having the plague and like, don't come near me. I think it's fitting that they, uh, we learned a couple weeks ago about Jesus cleansing a leper, you know, this is the new leprosy that we have going. The rules of the day when people had leprosy in Jesus' day was they were supposed to have a six-foot radius. I just, I see the similarities. And Jesus reaches out, goes through those barriers and touches the people. He doesn't leave them in isolation. He draws nearer to them. And so I feel like that's kind of our, our calling is, is in creative ways to draw near to each other to make sure we're, we're covered, we're kept in the loop. Amen? If there's a need, call somebody. If there's a fear, call somebody. If you just feel lonely, talk to somebody. We don't know otherwise. And there's nothing wrong with being lonely, having a bout of fear, and having a need. There's nothing wrong with that, right? All right. The fear of the unseen and the unknown can be a powerful force. Fear of change is really a powerful force, right? Because our imaginations tell us the future is going to be blank, but we don't know the future. God knows the future. And so when Jesus enters the scene, when these gospels were writ- written about, uh, things are changing. He's talking about something different than the Pharisees wanted to see happen, right? And, and the talk of change that he's bringing about is exciting for some and super scary for others, and it's creating tension. He's talking about a new kingdom They're scary for others because some of the people that hear Jesus speaking, see what Jesus is doing and his disciples doing, they think, no, we need to be going backwards. We need to go back to what was working before. We need to take Israel back to the good old days, right? When everybody was faithful and we were experiencing the blessing of God, back when David and Solomon were on the throne. That's what we need to get back to, right? But Jesus wasn't doing that. He wasn't there to do that. It wasn't looking the way that they thought it should look. And it was scary. Lots of tension. So that's what our story is about today. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, there's always change coming. And you are Lord over change. You are Lord over the mysterious future. We trust in you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to to glean from the scripture what you need us to hear this morning. Guide us, teach us. Lord, have your way here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we have this meeting, Jesus and the Pharisees. We have three scenes, and uh, we're just going to read through them real quick, and then I'll try to unpack them and then talk about them. All right? Luke 5, 33. The Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Then he told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it to an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment And the patch from the new will not match the old. 
And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some of the heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it. He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have three scenes here, three controversies, three questions about Jesus and his ways that people are not used to. He's doing things different, right? In the first scene, John's disciples fast and pray. The Pharisees' disciples fast and pray. Jesus' disciples eat and drink. And last week, we saw that they were eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Oh, my gosh, right? This is way out of the ordinary. And Jesus' reply to them is he compares their situation to a wedding, to a wedding feast, A new union is happening here, and this is time to celebrate. This is good news that that is coming. However, the time for them to fast and pray will come indeed. And he gives them two parables and a proverb. The first parable is talking about a new patch on an old garment. And if you do that, you, in essence, ruin both. You wreck the new garment that you took the patch from, and you wreck the old garment because it doesn't even match. And he talks about new wine for new wineskins and putting old, new wine into old wineskins. It, it, it ruins both if you do that. It bursts the wineskins and the wine is gone. It ruins both if you try to mix the two together. So Jesus is doing something new, and this new thing needs a new way, right? If you don't separate them, If you don't keep them apart, you'll ruin both. He didn't want to ruin both, apparently. And finally, he ends it with this proverb, those who have tasted the old prefer the old. And that's true. We all prefer the old, right? Once you've had and experienced something a certain way, it's hard to change. Even if you do go with the change, you still look back and you go, man, it was better then, right? I do. Scene number two. 
the disciples are walking along and the grain fields with Jesus, and Jesus' disciples began to pick some of the grains, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. And the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what's unlawful? It was unlawful to do that. They considered that to be breaking the Sabbath. They had many, many stringent laws concerning observing the Sabbath, to keep it holy, right? To please God by not working. We can't work at all. So you can't, you have to uh, limit your walks to a certain distance. Anything over that is considered work. And then this scene, uh, you can't pick heads of grain. You're farming. (laughs) It's unlawful in their opinion. So Jesus graciously points out a story about one of their heroes, King David, who went into the temple and ate the consecrated bread because he was hungry, ready to eat. So they went in the temple and took the special bread and ate it together. And, uh, and, and he makes the claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath. What David and his companions did was way more controversial than what Jesus and his disciples were doing at that moment. But he is also making the claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority to decide these things. And if there's ever any doubt about Jesus claiming he's God, here's an example of where he is straight up com- admitting he is, he is the Lord. He is God. Scene three, man with the shriveled hand. The Pharisees are watching to see if Jesus was going to work on the Sabbath by healing this guy. It was apparently unlawful to heal. I don't get it, but that's what it was. So Jesus brings up the man in front of everybody, and he looks at everyone, and he says, what is, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And the implication is that the audience would answer these questions. So I ask you, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Good, yes. You get a star. To save life or destroy it? Save life, yes, exactly. And Jesus is doing that very thing. By the way, if you look carefully in the Gospels, Jesus' favorite day to heal people was the Sabbath. Most of the healings, if not all of them, are on the Sabbath day. And so their reaction, they were furious. They were furious And they began discussing what they might do to Jesus. So the Pharisees are having trouble with Jesus because his ways are different from their ways. They'd often fast and pray once or twice a week. And and this was a good fast. There's nothing wrong with it. They were fasting and praying, interceding and petitioning God to bring blessing back to Israel. And here's Jesus and his companions just eating and drinking. Right? Not doing the practices that they've all grown up with. And they find that odd. They find that offensive. They don't realize that Jesus is bringing that blessing they've been fasting and praying about. And Jesus seems more laid back about these Sabbath day laws than they are, right? Picking grain and eating it was taboo. But it didn't seem to bother Jesus. He was just doing it. They were used to using different measurements. They were used to doing things a different way than Jesus was doing them, and it was causing tension. The Pharisees had organized, uh, and their purpose was to get the nation of Israel. They organized in order to get Israel back to where Israel needed to be to experience God's blessing. 
right? So they wanted to go back to the good old days. They wanted God's blessing, right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. They were just trying to get people faithful to God in their own way. And Jesus wasn't doing it that way. But they weren't going back. God was doing something new, new wine with new wine skins. And he was doing it whether they liked it or not. Change was coming. Change was happening. And in fact, Jesus is implying to them that their guarding the old they were was actually evil, not good. It was actually destructive, not saving anybody. In trying to get things back to the good old days, they were actually fighting against God's will. So change is difficult. Jesus' proverb rings true, doesn't it? Once you have tasted the old, you prefer the old, right? You say the old is better. It's true then, it's true now, and it will be true later. All right, so obviously, we are in a season of change in our church landscape, right? We're watching it change right before our eyes. Overall, in general, young families, young people are not really going to church anymore. They're not coming, right? No matter what we try to do, they're not coming. Our culture has changed. It's not a value anymore like it used to be to go to church. Sanctuaries in America used to be full for the most part, and now they're selling more church buildings than they're putting up. And I'm sure there are some sanctuaries around that uh, are full. Not today, but I mean, in general, they're full. But uh, this is something that I've looked into for the past 10 years, and, and the closer you look at it, the more you realize that this is overall transfer growth. This is church people migrating from one church to the next based on what amenities that church has for them and their family. They say, we're done with this church. Their youth group stinks. We're going to that one because their youth group's better. That fits our needs more, right? Somewhere in the 80s and 90s, the mega church became, became the standard for success in church. The bigger, the better, right? It was a very business-like model. We are growing this thing, and the bigger you get it, the more successful we are. It felt like success. You understand that? I see some nodding heads. The more you have, in fact, it could be construed as the more blessed we are, the more we're in God's favor, right? Because we've all said that too. The more we do God's will, the bigger our church will be, right? We kind of equate the two. But I'm not sure that that is true. I'm really not sure that is true. Does smaller mean you're not good? Does having less people mean that you are, more, you are less blessed, right? God's favor is not as with you as it is with them who have bigger stuff. And wouldn't it feel like success if this sanctuary were full? Wouldn't it feel like we have arrived? I think it would. I think there would be an energy in here that would be different than we've experienced in quite a long time, right? The only danger in that is we would feel like, ah, now we have done it, Right? Because the room is full. But is that the goal in God's kingdom? The old measurements of success, if we use them, we're not doing so well. But I've felt like the Lord has wanted us to use a more ancient measurement of success. God's measurements for success are timeless. 
and we need to make sure we use those gauges. So I'm going to talk about the old, and I'm going to talk about God's measurements. The old measurements of success used to be tied to membership, attendance, giving, budget, staff, facilities, activities. And they're all connected to a number, right? Because the more you have in these things, the more successful you, you are or you feel, right? The formula for success was the number of participants times or multiplied by their satisfaction or their support. That means you're successful. So the overall goal was to get people here and to keep them here, keep them busy with stuff, keep offering new things so they stay, so they don't migrate, right? The only danger in that is when somebody new walks in the door, we tend to look at them as a product, another cog, another number, rather than a soul. And we see guests coming and we're like, oh, thank goodness, more. We put our hope in that. Instead of when we have a guest, we, we wonder, how is this soul with Jesus? So the measurements that God uses and always has used and always will used is faith and fidelity. When we all stand before the Lord, we're not going to be judged by how big our congregation was, but we will be judged by our faith and our fidelity. Now, faith is we are following a person. We are following Jesus. He is our master, our leader. He is who we follow, right? He is our king and our Lord, and we want to follow him into the mysterious future, into the unknown land, right? And so it's our job to keep our eyes on him. Faith is not calculation on how we can make this grow. It's not calculating how can we be successful. Faith is following Jesus, right? We're, not, we're following a person, not a gimmick, not a program, not a thing, right? We're following Jesus. Fidelity is dedication to a cause. We are dedicated to Jesus' gospel, what he is about, his values. We are dedicated to conforming our minds to the mind of Christ, we are kingdom-minded, not institution-minded. You understand? So if we are making decisions based on faith and fidelity, we are doing the right thing. We are, we are working things out the right way, the way God wants us to do it. But it's difficult because we prefer the old. We're used to the old. To our taste, change doesn't taste as good as the old familiar right? So how do we think about the use of this building and this property in terms of faith and fidelity? Because if we think of it in terms of making it successful, our primary goal would be to draw a crowd and make this room full. But we've already agreed that that's not necessarily the best thing, right? I hope this room gets full someday. But in terms of making decisions for this building, this, this property, the stuff that God has given us, we need to use faith and fidelity as our deciding factors. Instead of asking, how can we fill the sanctuary on Sunday the old way, we ask ourselves, how can we use this building and pro property for the gospel going out? 
right? That's change. Since people aren't coming to hear the gospel, they're not coming here to hear the gospel like they used to, even when we invite them, even when we offer them a prize for coming, they're not staying. We need to take the gospel out. And, and I see that as uh, matching the scriptures a little bit better. Instead of thinking this space is primarily a place of worship, why don't we think of this space, this place, as primarily a place of ministry? Whose church is Vancouver First Trends Church? It's God's church. And I know with all my heart, I am confident that God wants this to work. He is pleased with us wanting to see his kingdom grow through us, through this stuff that he's been given us. We want to follow him in faith and fidelity. We want to follow Jesus, his son, and we want to be dedicated to the son's cause, of building the kingdom of God. Lord, this place, this people are yours. Use it, use us for your kingdom. Amen. But the proverb is still rings true. And this is where the tension will come for us. Those who have tasted the old prefer the old. They say the old is better, right? But in this story, we see Jesus walking with his disciples. And we see the Pharisees there on the same earth, the same time. They both, both those groups grew up in the same old environment, right? The disciples were used to the old too. They were following Jesus and it allowed them to experience the change right? Only one group was willing to go with the change, and it was those closest to Jesus, because they were following a man, not a way, not a system. Personally, you all, I would rather have a handful of people who are following Jesus, who are being the church, than a sanctuary full of people just doing church. I do want this place to be full, but I don't think I want it to be full of transfer growth necessarily, but it's not what I want. It's what the Lord wants, right? It would be cool to see this place filling up with new growth, new believers, where you all are the teachers, you all are the disciplers. Because it's not just my job, it's all of our job to disciple people. So in closing, is this a time to feast or is this a time to fast and pray? I think it's time to pray. Can we just take five minutes in our service right now and just pray? Pray for this church. Pray that we would follow Jesus, that we would be faithful to his cause, and that he would show us how this looks as we move forward. I just want to set aside five minutes. I'll keep my eye on the clock. I'll close. If a few of you feel like you need to pray out loud on behalf of the body, go ahead. But otherwise, we'll just take this five minutes dedicated to prayer. Let's go.
Thank you, Ted, for sharing. Let's close in prayer here. Lord, we trust you. We know that uh, you understand that change is hard. And yet you still invite us to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to have courage to do whatever we need to do to follow you faithfully, to be part of your cause and your kingdom. Thank you for being gracious to us, for loving us through this, all these transitions throughout all these years, Lord. You've been faithful. We do trust in you, Lord. And we trust that you will give us the answers that we need to have. Thank you for being good. Thank you for being greater than all of our fear. The fear of change and the fear of the unknown, Lord. You are Lord over all that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For your benediction, I'm going to read from 2 Chronicles 7. And then we can be dismissed to feast and eat cake, right? All right. Uh, It says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. So Lord, we just want to take this promise to be true that if we can pray and seek you, you'll have your way. Amen. Let's go be the church and have cake. Ready?